0: Acts chapter two, we're gonna start there together, page 749, and uh, my name's Dave, if you're new, welcome to Ethos, so so glad that you're here, and I wanna start with a bit of a confession uh, this morning. Uh, I don't have much of a sermon uh, for us, and uh, uh, for some of you that's great news because you hate sermons, and so uh, congratulations, you showed up on the right day, but, i don 't have much of a sermon this morning. I, I tried to preach a sermon at the nine, and you know it just didn't happen and, uh, and that 's okay and that 's just the way that it works and and uh, there are times when God just kind of disrupts our plans a little bit. And I just sense that this morning is is one of those times of disruption and so what, what I want to do is I want to just kind of walk you through the book of Acts chapter two, just a few short passages and this is not me like trying to teach you or talk at you. This is simply me trying to partner with God to invite you into what I think God has made every one of us for and, and the thing that God has been stirring up in us. I remember, you know, several years ago I was having a conversation you know, with a good friend of mine and we were talking about, you know, our kids and marriage and just kind of one of those late night conversations that's maybe you found yourself in the middle of before and I'm there in the midst of this conversation and he asked me two questions in regards to my marriage that have forever changed the way I've seen relationships. And I know it's a big statement, but just two ordinary questions that God just supernaturally used to change the way that I I view my marriage, the way I view my kids, the way I view us here as a family at Ethos. And I'll never forget them. First question was this. He looked at me and he said, Dave, um, when you imagine your friendship with Sydney, that's my wife. He said, when you picture your friendship with Sydney 30 years from now, What do you imagine that friendship to be like? And I don't know what it was about that question, but I had never in my life stopped to imagine what my friendship with my wife would be like in 30 years. I I had imagined a lot of things, the type of job I wanted to have, the place I wanted to work, what neighborhood we'd be in, even some aspects of our marriage, but I never really thought about it from that framework. What sort of friendship do you want to have? And so we started talking And I'm just sharing, man, this is what I imagine this to be like. This is what I hope God will do. These are the sort of uh, things that I hope will kind of happen in our marriage over the next 30 years. And then he asked me a second question that was equally powerful. He said, Dave, what is one step you can take today towards the future husband you want to be tomorrow? Like, what is one choice that you can make? What is one step that you can take towards your wife that will give birth to the the, kind of the future friendship that you hope God will help you have. And there was something about those two questions together. What do you imagine 30 years from now? And what is something you can do today to bring the future into the present Um, that really began changing me? I started thinking about my kids differently. You know, I have three boys, Micah, Jack, and Judah, five, three, and 10 months old. And uh, I was looking at my kids going, man, 30 years from now, When I sit down with Micah, Jack, and Judah, I wanna be able to confess my sin to them and to talk and to pray and to worship and to laugh and to be vulnerable. I want them to know their dad as he really is and not some kind of fake figment of a father that I project to them. And I thought, God, if I'm gonna have that kind of friendship with my kids, like, I need your help. And maybe there's some things that I can start doing today that will lead me to the the friendship that I wanna have in the future, because I'm convinced that those kind of friendships don't just happen. That I won't wake up in 30 years and have intimacy with my boys just because we existed side by side, but that we'd have to make some hard choices along the way and that God would do something, does that make sense? You kinda, kinda track with that. And so over the years I've been wrestling with those two questions and one of the things that I've realized is if you wanna have healthy relationships, you need more than a dream, but you have to also make a decision. You don't just need a dream about who you're gonna be or what you're gonna become or how that's gonna turn out, but you have to start making some daily decisions along the way. You have to make some choices about who you're gonna become and what that's gonna look like if you really want to see God flourish that. And so about six and a half years ago, God began to put this little dream in my heart, in my wife's heart, and in the heart of a few of our friends that there's gonna be a church in downtown Nashville. And I remember when this dream started kind of giving birth in our heart, we thought, God, this makes no sense. The last thing uh, Nashville needs is another country singer or another church. And uh, (laughs) we got plenty of both. And so I thought, this can't be from God. And we kept praying, and God was just really by the power of his spirit in the context of community saying, yeah, this is what it's gonna look like. It's gonna be a new family of faith here in the community. And so we started praying and we had no idea what this dream was gonna unfold uh, to look like, but we just knew that God was giving us a dream. And we started telling this dream to different people. And as we shared this dream, it was clear that it was now time to make some decisions, that if we wanted to see this dream come true, that we had to do something. So when we started this church, I was 26 years old, had no idea what we're doing, still don't have any idea what we're doing, so that should make some of you feel comfortable, that makes some of you nervous, but that's just true. You know, didn't know what we were doing, so we thought, let's start where we know to start. So we opened up the word of God. And we said, God, what is your dream for a community of people gathered around the person of Jesus living on mission with you? And we kept coming to this place in Acts chapter two where there's been this miraculous moment. Maybe you remember the story. Jesus has just returned to heaven He's just poured out his Holy Spirit into the lives of this little church in the middle of this huge religious festival there on the day of Pentecost. And Peter, one of Jesus' first friends, he stands up and he gives the most politically incorrect sermon in the history of all sermons. And he gets to the end of the sermon, and it's supposed to be the big altar call moment. And he gives just kind of the harshest statement ever. He looks at him and says, be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, the one that you killed, both Lord and Messiah. And then he drops the mic and walks off the stage and they're like, oh my goodness, what kind of sermon is that? But I love the people's response. They, they came to the disciples and they said, hey, what, what are we supposed to do? What decision do we need to make in light of what God has just done? And I love Peter's response. He says, repent, turn to God with your heart and your mind. It, just turn to God. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, every single one of you, and you will be filled with the Spirit of God. This promise is for you and for your kids and all those who are far off whom the Lord our God will call one day. And he keeps going in verse 40 of Acts chapter two. It says, and with many other words, he warned and pleaded with them to save themselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted the message were baptized. And about 3,000 were baptized that day in this amazing scene in Acts chapter 2. And there's this picture. And you've got to hear this like very clearly. If you don't hear me say anything else this morning, what happened in Acts chapter 2 happened because God moved. God moved. The spirit of God is poured out. The love of God is poured out. The the power and the presence of God is poured out. And what you see in Acts chapter 2 is a picture of God moving but what you see in the end of Acts chapter 2 is a picture of God's people responding to God's movement and one of the things that the Lord really began to kind of press in our heart years ago is if if we really want to become the people that God has made us to be the community that God has made us to be we need both the movement of God and the response of God's people to step into the movement In Acts chapter 2, if you take away either one of those sides, if you take away the movement of God, nothing happens. But if you take away the response of the people, nothing happens. And I love this. So Luke, who's writing down Acts chapter 2, he begins to give us this picture of how this community responds to this natural outworking, outpouring of God's presence among them. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 uh, with me. I'm just gonna read through the text, and then I'm gonna just try to point out a couple of simple things for us as we think about what it means for us to step into what God is doing today. Verse 42, it says they devoted themselves. It's a huge word, we'll come back to that. You can underline it, you can circle it, but it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer, and so Luke is telling us this story. He says God has moved in a miraculous way the people have responded. There's been this devotion to kind of these four things as they've circled around God, as they've circled around each other. And then the last part of this chapter, he begins to talk about where that devotion would lead them. So says, the result of this, verse 43, was everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that were performed by the apostles and all the believers were together. They had everything in common they sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. And every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad, or some of your Bibles say delighted, in sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. I love the way that this ends. It's such a key. And it says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so there's this picture that Luke begins to give us. He says, God has moved The people have responded to that movement of God. And what begins to break out of that response is this unfathomable, supernatural, beautifully intact community centered around the person of Jesus Christ. And there are two words that Luke kind of uses, I think, to give us a picture of this community. And I don't know if you take notes, but I would at least encourage you to grab a hold of these words as we navigate this text this morning. The first is the word devoted, devoted. And the second is the word delight. You see this picture that God moves and out of the response to his movement is this devotion. And then out of that devotion comes this unbelievable delight. I love this word devoted just to give you a definition of it. It means to persevere stubbornly to persist stubbornly towards something, to to work at it, to to try for it, to strive after it? I go, isn't it true that in every realm of your life, before there is delight, there will always be devotion? So if you wanna have the delight of being in great shape, of having a six pack, of being able to run a marathon, if you want to have the delight of being in shape, first you must be devoted to a new diet, into a new exercise regimen, right? If you wanna experience the delight of a good marriage or the delight of a good friendship, if you wanna have the delight of being vulnerable and authentic and real, isn't it true that before you experience the delight of that authenticity, there is a decision that you make to step into devotion? And you choose along the way. I'm gonna be real, I'm gonna be honest, even when I don't wanna be honest, I'm gonna be true, I'm gonna stubbornly persist and the things that God has put before me. And you see both sides of this coin throughout the scriptures that God moves and then there's this invitation to stubbornly persist in the things of God so that the blessings of God flow into our lives. That both of these things are equally important. When I think of this word devotion, I think of my my middle son, Jack, he's three years old. And uh, just, man, I love that kid, amazing, big brown eyes. He has me wrapped around his little finger, just an incredible little dude but he is the epitome of stubborn persistence. He is the most independent human being I've ever been around. He wants to do everything that his older brother Micah can do, even though Micah is two years older and six inches taller. Jack thinks he should be able to do it now and be able to do it better than his older brother. Some of you that are younger siblings, you, you know what that's like, right? And so Jack is stubbornly persistent in the ways of Micah. And so earlier this summer, we are in our front yard. We have this small little dogwood tree in our front yard. And the branches are pretty low hanging. And so Micah can, my five-year-old can jump up and grab those, climb up to the top of the tree. And then he does what any good brother does. He immediately will start taunting his younger brothers because they can't climb up in the tree. And so he climbs the tree and he's taunting Jack and kind of just being a good big brother to Jack. And, and uh, Jack is trying to climb the tree. And so because I'm an amazing father, I do what amazing fathers do. I go over and pick them up and put him in the tree. And this is like a no-no in Jack's world. Like, don't you help me, bro. Like, leave me alone, Dad. You're an idiot, Dad. Don't try to be a good father to me. He's not saying those things, but I can see them in his little brown eyes. And, and, and he jumps down out of the tree. No, I can do this. And so Jack, for the next hour starts trying to climb this tree, and he's trying to jump and grab the branch, and then he can grab the branch, but he can't pull himself up into the tree, and so he's trying and trying and trying, and he's scraping himself on the tree, and he's falling out of the tree, not very far, so don't call DCS on me, you know, falling out of the tree, and he's crying, and he's upset, and then after an hour, he finally gets his little leg around the branch, pulls himself up in the tree, tears streaming down his face, he looks at me and goes, Dad, that was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Climbing trees is so fun. (laughs) Oh, look, you kidding me, you crazy. And I go, it's such a picture. There's devotion, stubborn persistence. Legging it out, scraping it out, and the result of that grit and that devotion was the delight of being in the tree with his brother. And unless you understand this picture that's unfolding in Acts chapter two, we'll never understand why it is that we're not experiencing the community that you see in Acts chapter two. I think a lot of times we treat Acts chapter two like it's the lottery, and go, man, this one community, they just struck it rich, and the power of God poured out on them, and look at what they have. If only we could be that lucky. Instead, we'll just be a part of this church. And Acts chapter two is not God's dream for the selective few. It's God's dream for all of his people gathered around the person of his son, Jesus, filled with the Spirit. But Acts chapter two doesn't just come about by the movement of God, it comes about by the response of God's people to the movement of God. And it's interesting that Luke chooses to use the word devotion in verse 42 to describe how it is that this family was birthed. Look back at verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves. They, they, they stubbornly persisted, each one of them, towards the family that God was trying to give them in Jesus Christ. Isn't it true that, It is easy to be a part of a family, but it is really hard to be a part of a good family. Like, you know this to be true biologically. Like, if you're alive, you have a family, whether you know them or not, whether you like them or not, whether you wanna be around them. Some of you are in Nashville because you don't like your family and you had to get away. When you're born, you have a family. Parents, sometimes siblings, You all have cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents and great-grandparents. Every one of you, as soon as you're born, you have a family. But the rest of your life is a decision that you make as to how that family is going to turn out, right? And it is one thing to have a family. It is another thing to have a good family. And you see this picture in the scriptures that through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you and I are born into the kingdom of God, every one of us, for the first time in Jesus, we get to see God the Father as he is, in all of his greatness, and all of his glory, and all of his love. And right after we see the Father, then we're introduced to our spiritual family. The men and women that are in this room and the men and women that just span the globe. And there's a choice that you and I have to make after we encounter our Father. We have to decide, will we now embrace our family? And one of the real struggles, I think, for us, especially in a place like Nashville, where we kind of get spiritual overload, especially in a place like America, where we are highly independent and we are kind of segregated from one another, the decision that we have to make is, will we receive both the blessing of our father and the blessing of his family? Because as we begin to see the the goodness of the Father, you and I get the choice. We receive the blessing of the family. And Luke says, listen, the family that was being birthed in Acts chapter two, it didn't come easy. He says it came by devotion. It came by choice. It came by decision. When a group of people said, you know what? We will do whatever it takes to realign our lives around the person of Jesus, realign our lives around one another for the glory of God, the good of each other, and the city around us so six and a half years ago, we we're sitting in my living room. We had no idea what this was supposed to look like. How do you do this? We had no vision you know, for ethos becoming what it's become. You know, people always say, wow, what was the vision of ethos? And I say, it was not this. You know, we thought we were starting a Bible study in the living room. We had no idea what God was gonna do. Well, we're sitting there in my living room and we open up the book of Acts, Acts chapter two, and we look at this stubborn persistence that a group of ordinary men and women had whose lives had been touched by God, the things that they were devoted to. And we started asking the question, God, what would happen if we were stubbornly persistent to the things that the first church was stubbornly persistent to? God, would you maybe move in that way among us? And so for nearly six and a half years, is what we've been trying to do, to be people who are Stubbornly persistent. Look back at verse 42 to these four things that you see in the word. Number one is stubbornly persistent to the apostles' teachings or to the word of God. To be people that love the word, cherish the word, memorize the word, submit to the authority of the word. To believe that the word is the, the power of God to save people into the kingdom. Now here's a challenge for so many of us. And this was the challenge for me even when we started Ethos years ago. Is have you ever noticed what a struggle it is at times to be a person devoted to the word? Like have you ever noticed that sometimes the hardest book in the world to read is the Bible? (laughs) Have you ever noticed that when you try to carve out time to sit down with the word of God, how all of a sudden your mind begins to go other places and your phone begins to ring and texts begin to come in? Have you noticed the distractions that hit you? I would argue that it's not accidental that it's so hard to be devoted to the word. Jesus makes it clear that a life devoted to the word would be changed by the power of God. And I think the enemy knows that and he makes it so easy to miss out on. I remember years ago, long before Ethos started, uh, I was 22 years old. I was getting ready to finish up my master's in theology. I'd spent four years in undergrad. I was working on a master's of theology uh, at that time. And here's my confession to you. It began to really hit me. I realized here I am, a guy that's just spent six years studying the Bible and I do not enjoy reading the Bible. And I remember when that reality just began to wash over me being just so discouraged going, how in the world could this have happened? I don't enjoy reading the word. And so I remember going home to visit my family and I had the courage to kind of share with my parents. Hey, I I don't love the word, I don't know the word. I know you just spent a ton of money and we're really in debt so that I can know the word, but I don't, I'm sorry. I don't love it, I don't know it, what, what, what do I do? And I'll never forget a conversation I had with my mom. My mom and dad are two of the most godly people I know and uh, to this day, I, I don't know if I can remember a single day growing up where I didn't watch my mom read the word in her home. Seriously, I can't remember a day. Every night I know what she's doing. Word is open, her little notebook is open, she's journaling, she's reading for an hour every night. As long back as I can remember her doing that. And I remember talking to my mom, and I said, hey, can you like, help me understand how you read the Word, why you love it, what you do, can you give me some pointers? And what she shared with me like, just changed my life radically. Um, she said it was both a product of God's movement in my heart and a product of my devotion, my decision to lean into that movement. And she said, for the first 10 years that I was married to your father, I didn't like reading the Bible. I felt guilty because my my dad's a pastor as well. She said, here I am, I'm a pastor's wife and I don't like reading the Bible. What's wrong with me? (laughs) Some of you maybe feel this. And so she said, I just started praying that God would move in my heart, that he'd give me a hunger and love for his word. And I decided that until he moved, I would devote myself to being a woman of the word, even when it didn't feel good. And she said, do you know what happened? She said, God moved And I became devoted, and I'm not sure which order it happened in. But all of a sudden, I loved the Word in ways that I didn't know. And there's this moment where I was so encouraged to hear this woman who loved the Word, and I, I didn't know that struggle. I didn't know she'd ever struggled to devote herself to the Word. I just want to encourage you, if you've ever struggled to be devoted to the Word, you're the most normal human being in the world, and that there is this thing where God must move, and you must respond to see the way that this unfolds. And Luke is describing this little community. He says, they're like fiercely, stubbornly, persistent, devoted to the word. It keeps going. Look at verse 42. It says, devoted to the apostles' teaching and devoted to fellowship with each other. I love this word fellowship. We almost only use it in the context of spiritual communities because it's different than friendship. Friendship. You know, in the world, you and I, we choose friends based upon similarity. We pick, we hang out with people that are like us, that think like us, look like us, talk like us, live near us, enjoy the same hobbies, enjoy the same football teams. But in the church, you don't pick your spiritual family based upon likeness. You are given your spiritual family through the sovereign work of God and the power of Christ. And then you choose to be devoted both to God and that family. And the result of that is fellowship. The difference between fellowship and friendship is friendship is based upon similarity. Fellowship overrides your differences. Fellowship is about a group of different people coming together under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And Luke says, listen, sometimes friendship in the kingdom of God, to really make the family of God work, feels tough it doesn't always feel like a walk in the park. Sometimes it feels like a three-year-old climbing a tree and you keep devoting yourself to the lives of people that are different than you. It says there's this devotion to the word. There's this devotion to fellowship. Maybe my favorite part of the whole passage, keep going in verse 42. So says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now that's a weird phrase, but it literally just meant the communion. It's what we do every week together. We'll do this after the teaching. We break the bread, we take the wine, And here's what's so powerful about communion is every time they broke the bread and every time they drank the wine, they were reminded that the only reason they were a part of God's family was because of God's grace. Every time they took the bread, every time they took the wine, they said, I'm not here because of the family I grew up in. I'm not here because I'm so disciplined and good. I'm not here because I have my life together. I'm here because God has moved in my life. And so every time they got together, they would take, a commun- take communion as this reminder that they needed grace. I want you to just do something with me right now. It'll feel a little cheesy, but I don't care. Just, just play along. I want you to just take a second, look around the room. Literally, just turn your heads, look around the room, see the people in this room. Just look around. Every one of us, every one of us, every one of us are here by grace. The grace of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God. Nothing else brings us in and nothing else keeps us here. And there's this devotion to the word. There is this devotion to fellowship. There is this devotion to the breaking of bread, to the table of grace. And I love the way he ends verse 42, and there's this devotion to prayer. You now we talked about this a lot last week, is that we really believe here at Ethos that it's not just that we have the ability to talk to God. We believe that God still talks to us and that we as a community can hear and can respond to his voice in a variety of ways. And that prayer is a two-way street in which God and God's people communicate in the context of community. And so prayer is really, really important to what God is doing here. And I love this picture that you see in this early church. God has moved and all of a sudden, they find themselves in a room just calling on the name of God that God would do what only God can do. I remember several years ago, Sydney and I going to visit this amazing family. God has used them in just unthinkable ways. I can't even begin to describe it. Both their marriage and their ministry has touched the lives of millions of people. And we're sitting there at their dinner table and Sydney asked the wife a really simple question. She said, what is the one thing you all have done in the context of your ministry and marriage that have shaped your family and everything else? What's the most significant choice you've made? And without blinking, they both said it almost at the same time, which was kind of cute. They've been married 40-something years, you know. They responded in unison, and they said, every Tuesday night for 30 years, we have prayed for three hours as a couple and as a family. And I was like, <laughs> Cool, you know, you're on the three-hour plan. Sydney and I are on the five-hour plan, but I remember, I remember what it was like. No, <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness, oh, wow. And there's a moment where... Uh, If I'm being honest, at first I was really discouraged. I'm like, oh man, oh, our marriage sucks. Like, oh God, (laughs) oh my God, help me, help us please. And then on the other side of it was a dream. Like, oh, you can commune with God like that. You can know God like that. And I go, my marriage, you know, we're still not praying three hours a week, but we're praying more. (laughs) And our church, We're not praying like we need to pray yet, but we're praying more. And there's this picture that's unfolding in Acts chapter 2 of. God moving and the people responding with this devotion to his word and to friendship with each other and to the table of grace and the communing with God. And I love the the end of the chapter. I'm just going to kind of summarize it for you. Go home and read it. It's what we read just a little while ago, verses 43 through 47. You begin to see that this devotion is going to lead them to a place of delight. That this devotion to God and this devotion to each other is gonna lead them to this place of unbelievable delight. It says that all of the people were filled with awe. When was the last time you were filled with the awe of God? To be pressed down on your face by his majesty and mercy and grace. When was the last time you were blown away with the awe of God? It says that the result of their devotion was awe. It wasn't just awe, but it says there was power. There were signs and miracles. Little girls were being healed. Marriages were being restored. Addictions were being broken. That there was power in this community. That it wasn't just a place to sing and it wasn't just a place for sermons. It was a place to be touched by the hand of God. And that as they devoted themselves to these things, the power of God began to manifest itself amongst them. So they're devoted to generosity. I love that picture of generosity. It says they're all unified around the person of Jesus. They begin to sell their things to take care of each other. That there were no needs among the community. Can you imagine what that'd be like here? No needs among the community because of the generosity that's just pouring out of our lives. It says that there's this enthusiasm. You get down to verse 45 and verse 46. It says every day they keep gathering in the temple courts. They keep worshiping. They keep meeting in their homes. It's that feeling you have after Thursday night of church camp, you know, kind of that spiritual high if you grew up going to church camp and then you come home going, man, God, I don't ever want this to end. And you keep getting with those friends and you keep hanging out and you keep worshiping. It's the picture of what God was doing in the midst of this community. It says, they gathered, listen to this, look down at verse 46. It says, they gathered in their homes, eating together with gladness and sincere hearts. I don't know what you think of when you think of getting with Christians, but so often we think of a bunch of people sitting around a table, reading the Bible, praying, and leaving, and that is true, and that is a part of being a follower of Jesus, but I would argue that sometimes when we think about being in the kingdom of God, the the vision that we have is far too boring, that I'm convinced one of the real fruits of the Spirit is laughter, and that we we're gonna be in the kingdom of God and we we're gonna laugh our faces off and we are gonna dance and we we're gonna sing and we we're gonna enjoy each other. And it's a picture of what was happening in the church. Gladness, delight, joy, sincerity of heart, verse 46. It literally means they were vulnerable and authentic. And it says they praise God because only God could have done this. And look at verse 47, this is where we'll end. And the Lord continued adding to their number daily those who were being saved there's this picture, God moves and they respond, God moves and they respond, God moves and they respond and the reality of that response is the joy of God filling their lives and touching the hearts of people in the city and far beyond. I wanna challenge us as we sit here on a Sunday morning. It is so easy to settle for a lesser than version of what God desires. It it is so easy to come in a place like this, to sit in seats, to sing songs, to consume a sermon and to leave. But you are made for more. Your life was created to be an intersection of God's grace and power, and you were made for relationship, and and God longs to do that in you, and it will take both a move of God and both a faithful decision, a faithful response of God's people to keep moving towards the family that God is giving us. And I just wanna put two questions before us as we get ready to enter into a new season of ministry together. And I don't know if you take notes. I'd encourage you to write these down to wrestle with these in the context of your house, churches, your small groups. But first question is this. What do you hope this church family will look like 30 years from now? What do you hope this church family will look like 30 years from now? How you answer that question not only affects you, but it affects everyone that's sitting in the room. Some of you are sitting here going, This is my first week here, it'll be my last week here. I don't have a vision for 30, we're glad you're here, okay? But for the rest of you. I would argue that none of us would raise our hands and say, hey, I hope 30 years from now, I'm sitting in a crowded bar full of strangers. Hey, 30 years from now, I I hope I'm sitting in a community with people that are marginally committed to Christ and each other. None of us would have that dream. So may we, may we not make decisions today that would lead us to that lesser dream. May we not make the decisions that would say, we'll just come and sit in strangers and leave as strangers. May we say, we will stubbornly persist. We will devote ourselves to doing whatever it takes so that the movement of God may be enjoyed by God's people among us for the glory of God and the good of those around us. What do you want this to look like in 30 years? Is God's dream your dream? Second question. What choice will you make today to step towards that future? What choice will you make today to step towards that future? You need more than a dream, you need a decision. And there are these moments where we're all faced with the decision we're gonna make. You sit down every Sunday and you make the decision. I just met this person. Am I ever gonna talk to them again? That's a decision that you make. You walk into this building and there are men and women that live on the streets all around the building and you have the decision, will I pass them or will I engage them in the name of God? We'll go take communion together and you've got a decision to make. Will I break the bread, will I take the cup and just be by myself or will I open up my heart and vulnerability to the people here? The dream of God for biblical community is seized by men and women willing to make a decision of devotion, to step into it. And I wanna encourage you, wherever you are this morning, whatever your story, whatever your challenge, if you're gonna be a part of ethos, will you please be all in? Can we just commit to each other that we're gonna be in? that we're gonna lean all the way in, that we're gonna devote ourselves, that we know God's gotta move, but we're gonna do our part. We're gonna devote ourselves to the things that God has in store for us. And we'll trust that when that happens, God will do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Today, you're gonna to have an amazing opportunity after communion and worship. We're gonna begin signups for house churches and the bread of butter of what we do at Ethos. It doesn't happen on Sundays. It happens in homes as ordinary men and women get around a table of grace, open up the word of God, pray and make friendships with people that are different than them. God moves in amazing ways. And I wanna challenge you this morning to take a step towards the community you hope God will help us become 30 years from now. To make a decision to step in, to get involved in what God is doing. So let me pray for us and then we'll stand and we'll take communion together. And so... Uh, We'll see what God may have. Father, thank you for the men and women that are in this room. Thank you for your grace upon our lives.